Hello, friends, and welcome to Something to Talk About, a podcast created specifically for our women here at First Pres Augusta. I'm Amber Barrett, and for the next several weeks, various members of our Bible study teaching team and I will be talking together about God's Word, specifically the book of Ecclesiastes, and the unique ways it enlightens our lives. Joining me today again are Vanessa Hawkins, Elena Boone, and Leslie Bodgenow. First things first, ladies. Last week we introduced ourselves and told about our first memory of Augusta. Today we're going to get a little more vulnerable and share the first thing in our closets that should go to goodwill but hasn't and why. I'll go ahead and start by confessing that I love to throw things away. So when I purge my closet, I tend to dump things in the trash instead of taking the time to get them to goodwill. However, if there is one thing in my closet that should go to goodwill right now and hasn't, it would be the cropped black leather jacket. <laughs> I keep holding on to it because I think I'll find a trendy way to wear it. But the fact is, for five years, it sat in my closet. I try it on. I put on my jeans. I put on this little skirt. I do whatever, and it just never looks right. So it's hung there for five years, and I need one of my fashion consultants. If you're listening, you know who you are to come over <laughs> and help me out. So that's the, that's the item that's in my closet. What about y'all? I think I refuse to answer this question. I think that's <laughs> that's where I am because I can't prove it, but I believe that someone from my house has put you up to ask this question. I cannot tell. Uh, okay, well, you don't have to out them on the air, but we'll talk about it later. Um, yeah, so we've been here for three years prior to our coming here, so let me give the disclaimer. So I was a very good girl about clearing my closet. So once a year, if I hadn't worn it in a year, I would get rid of it once a year. But since I've been here, I've found that that trend has not continued. And it's as though I'm trying to hang on to St. Louis, I think. Mm-hmm. I think that's what's happening. It's stuff I haven't really gotten rid of. And I've gotten rid of a few things, but not much. So when you're asking what needs to go first, it's enough that I can't even name one thing. <laughs> it needs to be like, what box of stuff? What category You, you need to give me category. Yeah. Yeah. Your winter yeah. clothes from St. Oh, Louis that you don't need yeah. here. <laughs> that, oh, that hurt. Oh, yeah, oh, you're probably right. There are things I'll never wear here, and there are things that I'll, I only wear when I go back there because yeah. it's the weather difference. Totally. So, ladies, have y'all ever bought something so totally out of character? And you thought, I think these will grow on me. <laughs> My advice to you this very day is just say no. <laughs> I'm wearing just such an item today, slip-on loafers with about a pound of glitter, gold (laughs) glitter, loosely attached. I say loosely because when I walk, you'll see the path of shiny glitter beside me. One day, I will find a worthy recipient for these shoes, perhaps Dorothy of Oz, but I'm not quite ready. I was impressed. Yeah. I thought, yeah, I thought they were a bit out of character, but I thought, <laughs> how cool. <laughs> she leaves a little sparkle wherever she goes. She today. does. <laughs> Follow the yellow brick road. Well, I love it. My, my, the first thing that came to mind when I read this question was, I have, Amber, this has been in my closet way longer than your five years. Okay, okay. probably 16 years, okay? I have this formal dress 
that my sister-in-law gave me. She used to model for this big time uh, designer in Atlanta. And she gave me one of the dresses she modeled in. And it's fabulous. But I have nowhere to wear it. (laughs) And I don't even know if it will zip up on me anymore. And if it does zip up, it's so form-fitting and like almost like one of those corsets from of old, right? I mean, it's so stiff. It's a standing only dress. <laughs> okay, so I can't sit down. So where am I going to wear this? But every time I, I go to the Josh, we'll, we'll see if we can get, like, come up with the place. <laughs> and then you come over and stuff me in I will in zip you up, okay. girl. I will zip you up. We yeah, got you. We I got don't you. know why I still, every time I see it in there, I think, eh, I should, well... Maybe one day. You know. You're waiting for that time when you get in. You said, yes, I am a supermodel. That's right. You've been waiting all this time for confirmation. Sure, sure. And it is true. <laughs> all right. So it's clear that all of us around this table have things we probably should let go of. But we also all agree that time in God's word is not one of those things. That's why we count it a privilege to be sharing this time with you as we open up our Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 1, 1 through 18. The words of the preacher, the son of David king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they will flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, See, this is new. It has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to no wisdom and to no madness and folly. I perceived that this also is but a striving after wind, for in much wisdom is much vexation. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow.
Thank you, Beth. Beth is our youth ministry administrator and so much more and has kindly agreed to help us in all things recording, of which hey, Beth. we don't really know much about. So we love Beth. Thank you, Beth. Through that passage, he starts out, the preacher starts out saying, vanity of vanities, vanity of vanity, all is vanity. So five times in one sentence and 33 other times in the book, the preacher uses the word vanity, which is important that we know what vanity means. It's a word that concretely means a mist or a vapor, and metaphorically, it speaks of something that's fleeting or elusive. So this statement that everything is a mist fading away is the preacher's proposed text. He proposes it here at the beginning, he explains it through the next several chapters, and he applies it to life. It really helped me to realize that this preacher commonly most commonly known as Solomon, has an expressed intention behind his words. He's not, I kind of think of him as like venting on a day when he feels especially disillusioned and he's venting in his journal and somebody happens upon it and finds mm -hmm. it and distributes it. That's not what this is. All right, so on the contrary, he's using the extraordinary wisdom which has been given to him by God and he's crafting a particular message in a particular form for a particular reason. So it's like a sermon. But that said, it's not the type of sermon that we're used to hearing, is it? No. Uh, life is monotonous and hard, and then you die. <laughs> I've never heard that sermon before, and I don't know if I want to. <laughs> so if one of our preachers stood up uh, one Sunday and started out by saying something very similar to that, you would be like, what in the world yeah. is wrong with you this morning? <laughs> you didn't take your happy pills. You're in a bad mood Where today. Where is the good news? Yeah. Yeah. We are used to a much different sermon. We're used to a resolution. We've had such mm -hmm. good teaching at First Pres, and usually we have a nice resolution, a call for change in response to the gospel, change of mindset, charge to think biblically, a call to repentance, a change of behavior, maybe just a call to worship. But Ecclesiastes leaves, leaves us dangling, and dangling is not a comfortable place to be. Yeah, we don't like that, nor do we like some of the words that are used. They're very blunt, um, uh, you know, vulnerable type of hard words to hear um, that make us feel kind of uncomfortable. And so if we have these sort of differences, a lack of resolution, we don't have maybe a happy starting point, we're not really starting with of who God is and then applying it to who we are. We're starting the opposite way around. You know, we, we talked about that last week, self-knowledge here and then discovering who God is. So if what is it about those differences? What do those teach us about the way God himself sometimes preaches to us? Yeah, I think what comes to mind for me is 1 Corinthians one twenty seven. Um, he shames the wise with foolishness. Ecclesiastes just proves that his delivery of his truth isn't always direct, neatly packaged the way we want it, um, not in a way that preserves our ideas of who God ought to be to mm -hmm. us. He won't allow himself to be limited to the confines of our imagination and our expressions. He's just so much greater than that. And with every exceptional statement, with every exception that this preacher makes, he reminds us that he's a God that just can't be tamed. Mm -hmm. And that's uncomfortable for us. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. It's very uncomfortable, and he's he's not afraid to speak to us. I could think this is what I was referring to before, using literary devices that lend themselves mm -hmm. to transparency, mystery, mm -hmm. what you're saying. It's mystery, mm -hmm. uh, emotion, 
And so in, in Ecclesiastes, we're going to see lament. We're going to see cynicism. We're also going to see a commended, uh, appropriate worldliness. And we're going to see, believe it or not, joy. I think it helps to know here at the beginning that these are some of the things we can anticipate seeing, that we should keep our eyes out for. And, it, and it, I think it's important to have an introductory idea of what those things are. So if you were to describe, Vanessa, lament and cynicism as they're found in Ecclesiastes, give us a little summary of, of what that's going to look like. Yeah, I, I think I would describe lament as movement towards the Lord and honest grief, pain, disillusionment. Um, maybe even while questioning his goodness, his character, but honestly moving towards him. Seeking understanding and relief is generally when I, when I think of how the psalmist laments, that's what I think. But I would say that cynicism is kind of doubt and disbelief that doesn't necessarily lend itself to that type of forward movement towards the Lord. Mm-hmm. Um, and instead, it can lead to being stuck in your own conclusions about the limits of humanity and creation. And we see some of that, but what actually happens is it kind of propels us forward still in that it begs for solutions outside of itself. So it's not movement that's towards the Lord, but it's movement in that it propels us towards looking for solutions outside of it. Yeah. It's kind of how I think about it. Yeah. Which is a helpful way to think about cynicism because you could think of cynicism again as he's just given up hope right. and we should all give up hope and this is hopeless, but he's using it to push us towards something else. It just takes us a while, right. a while to get there. Uh, and so, you know, the need to lament over what's been lost and appropriate cynicism regarding the limitations of man and nature could lead could lead us to conclude that we need to look outside of the world to find the thing that satisfies us. You know, to turn your eyes upon Jesus and the things of the world will grow strangely dim. Hmm. But that's not exactly what we're going to hear from the preacher, which was sort of surprising to me. Instead, he's going to encourage us in Ecclesiastes to find appropriate satisfaction in the things of the world as they come from the hand of God. So he's going to tell us that there's really nothing better in this world from the hand of God than to have a place to inhabit, a thing to do in that place, and some people in that place to share it with. So that type of commended worldliness is the reason why we can do uh, what the Westminster Confession says is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That we can do that right here, right now, where we are, under the sun, in the very midst of all the meaninglessness, the cynicism, and the lament. But while there is joy in the midst of all these things, we still have to reckon with the fact that Ecclesiastes will force on us the reality that there are no surefire, formulaic, painless approaches to life with God. You know, all y'all know that Cody was seriously sick this summer in the hospital. And I found myself struggling in new ways um, with the reality that he and I really were, we were at the mercy of a God who can't be bargained with. I mean, I wanted to have some type of bargaining chip uh, to hold up to the Lord. It was just the reality that I don't have one. And so Kneeling by Cody's bedside at 1 a.m., unsure of his diagnosis or his prognosis, that was really a terrifying reality to me. But, you know, as a result, I have found that I am drawn um, in some ways to the seeming brutal message of Ecclesiastes because it doesn't gloss over painful realities. You know, when we're in that type of place or we have experienced that type of thing, but we never hear it spoken of, 
then we finally hear someone speak of it, it almost feels, you know, like a relief. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that to some extent, our appreciation of Ecclesiastes, as we study it, will correspond to the degree that we recognize and engage in painful realities of life. Can y'all relate to that statement? Does that resonate with you? What came to my mind was our year in Nepal. It was a long time ago now, but the memory is still emblazoned on my mind. In a way, it was one of the sweetest times of our lives. We had been married eight months. It bonded us. It cemented us. We only had each other. It was a sweet way to start a marriage. We have sweet Nepali friends. They are a a, a gracious, sweet people by nature. And one of my dearest friends was our Nepali house helper. And she, if you've ever eaten for a year in Nepal, you know that you eat rice every day, and sometimes you eat stones with the rice. Our Nepali house helper went through the rice every day and took out every stone. And I can tell you that in our home, we never chomped down on a stone, and that was because of her labor. The other thing she did, I learned about lentils in Nepal, and each color is associated with a different flavor. Janjali went um, the longer path, went out of her way to walk to the store, the little outside store that had the best color lentils for us every day. So we, in our home, ate festival lentils every day of of our year. She is a dear friend. There's some difficult times as well. The missionaries did not get along, and they didn't like short-term missionaries. We were there for a year. We had been asked to come there because they, there was a field conference that they wanted to attend, and one of their doctors was on furlough. But it was quite clear that they felt like short-term missionaries, that was a waste of money. So we were there six weeks. We had gone to language school, But what we learned was High Nepali, and we went to our village. No one understood High Nepali. So there was a a village dialect. So we were there six weeks, and the team went to the missions conference, to the field conference, and they took all the translators. We had no one for weeks who spoke English on the compound. It was such a dysfunctional field that the head of the mission board came out while we were there to try to... um, resolve some of the issues. We, of course, weren't party to what was said or done, being, being there only uh, a year. And I struggled. How could you leave such a delightful people with this tarnished witness? But God's church grew in that time. His kingdom advanced, and we saw some delightful illegal baptisms. <laughs> How illegal. <laughs> That is a hard thing, though. You think when you love these people and you think we're part of this witness, we want this to be a wonderful witness. This is the only seeming witness, and it's a tarnished witness. And to wonder, Lord, why did you choose that? But God reminded me it was never about the missionaries. It was always about my word and my spirit. Yeah, that's good. I think painful realities always bring me face to face with the futility of my trying to control outcomes. And the preacher talks a lot about chasing after the wind. And I've heard that ringing in my ears over the past week, um, watching two hurricanes forming and heading toward the Gulf Coast, where we've just newly launched our daughter for her freshman year Mm -hmm. of college. 
I honestly felt like I had done okay releasing her several states away during a pandemic and then getting word that she is in the path of not just one, but two mm -hmm. hurricanes. It brought every one of my problem-solving, fix-it, controlling mm -hmm. tendencies to the immediate surface. And I thought of all kinds of plans, and I'm, I'm ashamed to say the first thing was like, okay, I could fly down. Uh, sec uh, yeah, but then I'm like, what you gonna do? And I was like, I, I fly down, but then they won't let me on campus because I was like, I can't get on campus. Um, and if winds pick up, the, the plane can't take off. Um, I could drive down, but if if they evacuate, we could get stuck on the highway. And so it was after racing, all these racing thoughts, and then it's like I could pray. Mm. <laughs> so, and you know, and I want to tell you that that was my first thought. It wasn't. Mm -hmm. And the Lord has wired me to be a planner and an organizer. That is how I work. Um, Sydney and my first, our favorite thing to do, our favorite store is organized living. Those things are good and right when subordinated to his wise plans. And they're perverse when I'm doing them on my own outside of um, his uh, good wisdom. And so in those moments of crisis and angst, I have to remind myself not to go chasing after the wind, you know, but that the Lord has a plan and it's good and wise. And that's hard to remember sometimes. That's, that's such a great description. Chasing after the wind, literally. Chasing mm -hmm. after hurricanes. Thinking that you could go stand in the path of a hurricane and affect some type of change. Hurricane. Yeah. You know? I was yeah. going to force an outcome. Yeah. Yeah, not. I think I usually like to think on the sunny side of life. I don't think I'm Pollyanna, but um, but I don't think I like to dwell in the hard times or think about the Psalms of lament or, um, so I think Ecclesiastes is going to be a challenge for me, but, uh, I think they're, the, the Lord is going to show me some sweet things through it. Um, there are just things that the Lord does in a time of trouble when you can't just fix it right then. And I've definitely seen that in some circumstances with my extended family over the last couple of years. It's caused me to ask some hard questions of the Lord. And he's met me in ways that I didn't know before. So sometimes being in that uncomfortable place is a blessing from him. And I don't like that. But I think it's true. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I was going to say, what is, you know, we typically do want to pass over discomfort as quick as we can. I, I was reading recently just a description. Someone said, if you're one of those people that has to fast forward through the hard or traumatic parts of a movie to get to the happy ending, then you're probably not very good at waiting on people in traumatic events in their real lives. And I thought, that's true. I do like to go through that part because it hurts. Yeah. Not that I'm like, oh, I'm bored with this. But it hurts, and it hurts to hurt with people, and it hurts to not be able to get out of, you know, to have a plan or to affect a plan. It's, it's a very hard place to be. So we're going to be in that discomfort for a while in Ecclesiastes. I know we know that. We've been saying that. So you're saying part of that benefit is you're going to see God in ways you haven't seen him before. What other kind of benefits do you all anticipate receiving? I mean, I know we know it's going to be hard, but on the front end, can you think, you know, this might be good because of this? I think that um, in the last year, so la last summer, I was diagnosed with breast cancer. Um, and it was stage zero, praise God. Uh, but in that journey, um, 
I learned something that I don't think I knew before, that joy and grief actually can exist together. I think before I thought you were either joyful or you were grieving, but now I know you can be joyfully grieving. You can have joy and be sad, and it's okay to be sad Mm -hmm. that you have to check a box every time you fill out a form that says you've had cancer. You know, Mm -hmm. that's sad, Mm -hmm. but there's so much joy in, okay, we think it's gone. Um, You know, I'm still here. Um, I didn't have to have chemotherapy. I mean, those are all just blessings. My my three children, I, I, I'm still with them, and my sweet husband. I mean, there's so much joy, but it 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 can mingle together mm-hmm. with the grief, yeah. and that is, I think, what we're going to hear more in Ecclesiastes mm-hmm. that there is joy, and there is sorrow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I love how you say that it's not wrong to be sad, that sadness isn't an affront to joy. You know, it goes along with joy. So strange, but it's true. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. I think, too, these first couple of chapters, well, the first mostly whole book, we hunger for what is not vanity. Solomon, wiser than any other man, wealthiest king of his time, when he tells us what is a vapor, we hunger for what is not a vapor. When we look at the whole of Ecclesiastes and we come to the wonderful end, isn't that part of gospel living, interpreting the middle turmoil in light of the glorious end? So good. Mm. It's very well said. Teaching us to hunger. So while we don't want to pass over or through discomfort too quickly, and we won't be able to in Ecclesiastes, but we are strengthened to know that there is joy in the midst of that discomfort. And that's the beauty of the full revelation of Scripture. You know, Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes doesn't stand alone. It is tied to God's larger story of redemption, and it's tied to Jesus. Zach Eswine, the author of the book that Nessa recommended last week, Recovering Eden, the Gospel According to Ecclesiastes, writes this, As we read Ecclesiastes together and enter the wreck of it all, We will be led time and again from Ecclesiastes to Jesus Christ. It is Jesus Christ, after all, who is the true king and the true son of David that Solomon foreshadows. Therefore, the language, teachings, footsteps, cross, and resurrection of Jesus will inform our reading. That's encouraging, but it's sometimes hard to figure out how that is. How does Jesus relate to Ecclesiastes? So, Vanessa, in what ways from our passage today do the realities of Jesus and his work inform it? How do they inform our passage for today? Well, I just thought um, Elena's take on it was amazing. Um, But I I do think that in many ways, Solomon is a picture of the ultimate preacher, and that's Jesus. The message of Ecclesiastes is that of this King Solomon condescending, coming down to share a common human experience and saying, hey, this is how we are all alike. Mm -hmm. And isn't that the message of the gospel? Jesus, the ultimate king, made flesh and dwelt among men. And and so you see that picture and that foreshadowing of Christ in that. But I also think the preacher causes us to long for the ultimate preacher and and, and this the consummate wisdom that's in Christ Jesus. Um, 
think the reality of the fall has subjected all creation to futility, as Paul tells us, and the, the preacher refers to this over and over again, and he does create this longing. There's got to be more. And, and this futility is the source of creation's groanings. This the, you know, the, the, the hurricane, this the, the earth groaning. It's, um, you know, breast cancer, our bodies groaning. And so it, it makes us await the day when the Lord will come and make all things new. Um, Solomon does not shy away from, um, you know, the truth and the wisdom that we get from Christ that in this life you will have tribulation, but be yeah. of good cheer yeah. for I have overcome the world. With that promise in mind, we hope you will join us again next week. Take us along for your carpool. Invite us to join you for coffee. We'll be talking about Ecclesiastes 2, 1 through 26, and the place of wisdom and pleasure in our lives. We'd love for you to listen in. Sometimes a light surprises the Christian wife she sees. It is the Lord rises with healing in his wings when comforts are declining he grants the soul again a season of clear shining to cheer it after the rain 